meaning you're involved. Um, if you felt something during those songs, uh, maybe it was joy, uh, maybe it was peace, maybe it was excitement, maybe even conviction of sin, that was the Holy Spirit because we meet every Sunday a half hour before the service to pray for God to be here, for God to, to work. Um, and, and God is here. The Holy Spirit is here. And it's the biggest thing about us gathering together. It's not the awesome worship music, which is awesome. It's not the great sermon, if it is. Um, it's that we get to meet with God. And so I just want to encourage you. You are free during this time of worship to respond. Uh, that's what happens when we meet with God. When something exciting happens, we don't just go, cool. We, we respond. And so there's different ways to do that. We have our prayer walls over here that you can come up and write a prayer uh, and put it in there. I mean, I did it during this first one because I was just led to go ask him to be here with us even more and tell him he's worthy. But it's just another way to, to give a prayer. If you want to sit down and, and, and pray or, or think or he, hear the music, that's okay. If you... <laughs> if you want to put your hands up, that's okay. At the end of the service, uh, we will have more music going and there's people in the back to pray. That's a time where you will probably feel some prompting because you've heard the word and the Holy Spirit will use that to convict you, to lead you, and there's people to pray with you. So this is a time to meet with God. And by the way, God wants to meet with you. So if it doesn't happen, it's your fault. Um, <laughs> no, not really. And you don't always feel these things, you know, but... When you do, respond. Because things happen when you respond to God. And often in these settings with a group of people asking God to show up, He does. It was in a worship gathering that Callie and I were, were led to plant the church. It was in, in a gathering where she looked at us and she's like, if we don't plant a church, we're disobedient. And we, we went forward and, and were prayed over. And in times like this, God shows up. He will stir you. Respond. Respond. That's all I got to say. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit that is present with us. Um, God, we, we stumble through this life. Sometimes we try and obey. Sometimes we just want to walk our own way. And you are faithful. You are faithful to bring us back. You are faithful to love us. Um, God, you showed your faithfulness by sending Jesus. When we were still sinners, when we were still your enemies, when we didn't deserve it, you sent your son to die for our sins. And we thank you. And now we... We love you. We're here to worship you. And Holy Spirit, I ask again that you would be present among us. God, that you would stir our hearts the way you want to stir our hearts and our minds, that you would be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. So we got a, a couple signs up here, a couple pictures going to pop up. Um, as those pop up, you can turn to James. We're going to be in James this morning. Do we have those? There we go. What would you do if you saw this sign? Anyone? Run, Alex says run fast with his eyes closed. Now, next one. What if this is on a bottle? Would you drink it? Next. I love that one. This is probably on a fence, like around an electrical thing. Would you want to climb that fence? Yes. <laughs> or this. Would you swim if you saw this sitting out in front of the, the river? I think that's our last one. Is that our last one? What, what do you do when you see warning signs like this? You, you stop. <laughs> yeah. You take note. and You probably do what it says to do or don't do what it says to, to not do. Otherwise, 
you could get eaten by an alligator or electrocuted or trip over something. Um, today, we're going to be in James chapter 5, and what we're going to get is James giving us a warning. And this is a huge warning. This is a warning that we should heed, and it's about money. And this is different today than every other passage in James. So we've been going through James this summer, and I'm surprised to see so many people in the room because it has really been a kick in the throat week after week because James is all about, if you say you're a Jesus follower, if you love my half-brother, by the way, Jesus and James, half-brothers, same mom, um, he says, if you love him and you've given your life to him, it's going to show up in how you live. And he's writing to people who it's not showing up very well. They're, they're slandering each other. Uh, they're talking bad about each other. They're walking right past poor people that are suffering and they're not helping them. They're not living their faith. And James kind of gets ticked off and he writes this letter. He says, enough is enough. You are Jesus followers. You are brothers. He says it repeatedly through the book. Brothers, brethren, do this, brethren, brethren. So he's speaking to believers not walking rightly. So it's very possible to be a Jesus follower but not be very good at it. And so James is writing to say, let Jesus be Lord of your life and let it show up and live through. Today's different because today he stops talking to the believer. And for six verses, he speaks to the non-believer, probably the non-believer in their midst. So if you don't know it, there's many within the church, I mean, church globally, that think they're Jesus followers, um, that are, they come to church, they do a lot of things, but they're not actually. And in the end, they're going to stand before Jesus. And Jesus is going to say, I never knew you. They're like, what? but we, we came to church a lot. We did all these things. And he says, depart from me, I never knew you. That's who James is speaking to. And it's a warning to go, if you think you're right with God, check this. And he's going to talk about money. Specifically, he's going to talk to the rich. But here in America, I think this applies to probably a lot of us, uh, most of us. And he's going to give us three things, three sins, three traps that we can fall into with money that lead to eternal judgment. Now, this is, there's some tension with James. The tension is, if you're not living it, you might not be a true believer. Um, or you are a true believer and you're not living it, so get off, off your butt and, and get moving, get in the game. But here, James takes the tone of an Old Testament prophet. And the prophets did this all the time. If you read through the prophets, maybe you haven't done that much. There's Joel, Hosea, Amos, good, good things to read. But the prophet will be writing to the Jews, God's people. And he'll be, he'll be telling them what God says. And then a lot of times there will be just a, a chapter and he'll go, by the way, Edomites or, or whoever, you guys are going down. God has given me some words for you. You're going to be judged. You're going to be wiped off the earth. And so it's kind of in the midst of the prophet speaking, he'll then turn to a group and just condemn them. That's what James does here. So he is not speaking to believers. He's speaking to non-believers tucked in here, but it's a warning to the believers because this is being read in churches among believers and they're listening. That's what it's here for. It's a warning to go, where am I? And these three sins are all about money. Now, Go ahead and turn to James. We're going to be in James 5. But before we get into it, I, I need to do a, a little caveat because we're going to talk about money. And, and there's really nothing more personal that we can talk about than money, I don't think. Money. You guys ever heard uh, the scripture, money is the root of all evil? No. Oh, some smart people just said no. I've heard it through my life, money is the root of all evil. That's a misquote of a passage that says 
Money is the root of all kinds of evil. And it's actually the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, not money. So is God anti-money? Not at all. A rich person that belongs to Jesus is a powerful tool for the kingdom. God is not anti-money. We need to get that very clear. First uh, Timothy 5.8 says, But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for the members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So the person that can't provide for their family, I mean, not because of disability or whatever, but they're not willing to go work and make money and provide, they're worse than an unbeliever. So God's not anti-money. He says, go, work hard, earn money, and provide for those. Is God anti-saving? I, I talked to somebody once who said, I'm not saving for retirement. God will just provide for me and my family will provide. I'm like, I'm not sure that's biblical. Because in uh, Proverbs 13, 22, Writes, a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. So God is not anti-saving. In fact, wisdom would say, work hard, make money, save it, and be a good steward. If you look throughout Scripture, you'll find a lot of rich God followers. Jesus followers in the New Testament, God followers in the Old Testament. Abraham, very rich. Job, very rich. Lydia, a woman who had a business, very rich. We can go through the list. Nicodemus, Joseph, uh, Philemon. Many rich people that followed God. So God is not anti-money. God is not anti-rich people at all. But the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It says this in 1 Timothy 6.10 exactly. For the love of money, if you want to write this in your notes, I encourage you. 1 Timothy 6.10. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Listen to this. Some people eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. If you remember nothing else, we're going to get into James and he's going to talk to the rich. He's going to talk to people that love money. This verse is the theme. This verse is what should grab our hearts. I'm going to read it again. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. If you don't know, God loves us passionately. God loves you more than you love yourself. Jesus said, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. God wants what's best for us. So if the Bible tells us something, it's for our good. God isn't the God that's up here with a magnifying glass on ants. You know, a lot of people think of God that way, looking to judge. God wants to bless his people. So anything he says is for our good. Be faithful to your husband. Be faithful to your wife. Well, that's for your good. Parents, discipline your children well. Spare the rod, spoil the child. That is for our good. That is for their good. So all of this and now money, this is for your good. Whether you realize it or not, it's for your good to be a good steward with your money. Here's the first thing in your notes. The love of money is extremely dangerous to a person's soul. Just like earlier in James, James talked about the tongue. The words you say are just evidence of what's in your heart. How you spend your money is evidence of what's in your heart. And the heart is the issue. Here's a very difficult quote that I heard from a, a pastor in Texas called, named Tommy Nelson. He says this, The Christian that prays, attends church, engages in religion, but leaves their money untouched, their life is a sham. Talk about blunt. He's about as blunt as James, but it's true. Let's look at James. 
I'm going to read James 5, 1 through 6. He writes this. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Again, he's speaking to non-believers, specifically to those rich. And we see three specific sins, three specific traps that lead to judgment. Traps that lead us away from God. So this is in your notes. You'll see that the head there is sins that non-believers commit with money that leads to judgment. Here's what's, I think, helpful about this. As you read the New Testament, you read Scripture talking about rich and poor, it's actually a spiritual handicap to be rich. It's a spiritual handicap to be rich. Why? Jesus said it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to get into the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because rich people in general, they feel content. They don't need, they're not hungry. You know, they're not lacking shelter. They've got the money to provide all they need. And so they become very self-sufficient. Whereas the Christian, we're called to be God-sufficient, reliance on Jesus. So sometimes the best thing that can happen to somebody is that they lose everything. And then they're forced to go, I'm not good enough. Oh, there is a God and turn to Jesus. So being rich is a spiritual handicap. So if you're poor, you're blessed. <laughs> so if you're rich, let me help you out. Give me all your money. <laughs> and then uh, I will be handicapped. So here's, here's the sins that can be committed. He starts in verse 2. Well, let me, let me look back at verse 1. How do we know that he's speaking to non-believers? He's warning them of judgment. In fact, he's not just warning. He's saying judgment is coming. He says, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Christians, listen, if you're a Jesus follower, you believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins, rose from the dead, you have given your life to him, you may struggle, you won't be condemned. Romans 8 1 says there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is not speaking to you. But if you're guilty of all of these three sins, you may want to check yourself. Verse 2. Here's the first one. Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you, and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure. In the last days. Here's the first sin. Hoarding wealth. Hoarding wealth. And you see the result. As he talks about it will eat your flesh like fire. Again, this is speaking of eternal judgment. Which will not come on the Jesus follower. By the way, you don't have to be perfect as a Jesus follower. If you are, come see me because I need to learn from you. None of us are perfect yet. But this is speaking of people pursuing money, pursuing wealth. They don't belong to Jesus, and it will consume them with fire. They will be judged. But here's the first sin, hoarding wealth. 
the, the picture is storing up, hoarding. It's the person that has more than they need while there's other people next to them that don't have enough and they won't share. It's like the kid. Maybe you've ever seen this. Uh, you had a group of toddlers or whatever in a room, maybe over there right now, and one collects the toys and just puts them like, I, I need all of these. And, and another kid comes up and goes, I want to play with that one. I'm like, no, nah, I'm saving that for later. Well, you can't play with all of those. Am I the only one that's seen this happen? <laughs> well, but I might want one later, but you can't play with all of them right now. And so, but there's the kid hoarding all the toys because they might want one later. That's kind of the picture here. Or of somebody, you know, picture farming. They lived in an agricultural time. And a farmer over here has a great crop that year and fills his barns. Well, this one over here happened to have a, a bunch of locusts come in and eat them up. So they have more than they need. They had a bad year. They don't have enough. But these don't share with these. That's hoarding. Not just saving. Again, saving, God is not anti-saving. It's, it's having more than you need and not sharing with someone that has need. And we know this because as we look, uh, he talks about their riches. Verse 2, your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. It's the picture of you have so many clothes that the moths have eaten them because you're not even wearing them. But over here, there's somebody with one garment and it's worn out. Just, just give them that garment. You'll see this at the beginning of James. In James chapter 1, James 1 um, Talking about being doers of the word and not hearers only. Uh, James talks about if you walk past, where is it? I'm, I'm, I'm losing it. Where is it supposed to be? It's in James 1. Come on. Somebody's got it. 19? There it is. No, that's not it. There it is. Verse 22. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror. We must be doers of the word and not hearers only. Hoarding wealth is the first one. Here's the thing. Hoarding wealth is a sign of an unregenerate heart. You have the short-term you know, clothes and things that have rotted, but then their long-term savings... He says, your gold and silver have corroded. You know how long it takes for gold and silver to corrode? Like forever. I mean, people that dig up these treasures that have been there for hundreds of years and the gold is still good. It takes a long time for these things to corrode. But it's the picture of your, your short-term assets, your food, your clothes, whatever, you're hoarding this, but then you're storing up all this extra money here and you're going to die with this huge 401k or whatever. But there's these people over here that need it. And he says... Like in a, in a court of law, it's your riches that are on you know, the stand testimony against you. Look at us. We're rotted. You didn't actually need us because you would have used us if you needed us. And so they are evidence against them and will eat their flesh by fire. He says you have stored up treasure in the last days. What are the last days? Between Jesus' first coming and second coming. So for, it's been 2,000 years of last days, but... Look at the signs of the times. Jesus is coming back soon. Now, every generation has believed it, but I believe it more than they did. Jesus is coming back soon. That's what, as Christians, we are to live as if he could come back any moment because he can. And so in these last days, Jesus is coming. We're living, looking forward to him coming. Next week is all about that. It's going to be great. Uh, two weeks. Two weeks is all about that. Next week is about evangelism. That's great, too. But between, in these last days, he's coming back. 
Stop storing up. Stop hoarding your wealth. Let your faith and your stewardship tell the same story. What might this look like now? As I was this morning praying over this, I thought, how might hoarding wealth look like now? Uh, And I picture the person that has this awesome car collection, all these collectible cars that they don't drive, they just look good. And then over here, you have this single mom with her minivan with the wheels falling off. And she's working, you know, she's trying to provide for her family. She's trying to do what she can. All this guy needs to do is sell one of those things, and he could provide many, many vans for many single moms. I think that's a very valid application for us now. Are we storing these things because we like them, because we want them, where somebody over here is doing their best, and they just need help? We're going to see the second one in a minute. But I want to point something out. You know, one of the cool things about being a pastor and getting to study the word for a living is you learn things. And there's a passage in Exodus that I, I never understood until I did this study. And it answers this question. Why does God allow some people to have more and others less? You ever wondered that? Like, I work hard, I do. But how come I'm always behind? How come I'm not rich? And that person over there, they're not any smarter than me. They're not any better than me. But they're, they're rich. God has just provided for them. Well, in the book of Exodus, we see, if you remember in Exodus, the Israelites were saved from Egypt. They're wandering around in the desert and they're hungry. They need food. And so God provides manna for them. Manna was bread from heaven. It came at night in, in the dew and it sat on the ground. And in the morning they would go out and they would collect it. And they would take it back and they would make cakes out of it. And that's what they ate. And it says this in Exodus 16, 17 and 18. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more, some less. But when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. I never understood this. I thought if you gathered more and you don't have leftover and you gather a little and you don't have lack, then why don't you just, I thought it was magically, not magic because it's God doing it, but you just gather a little and God makes it enough. Well, then why would you waste your time gathering a bunch? You just go out there and just go, whoop, that's enough. I never understood that. Well, that passage is only quoted in one other place in Scripture. It's quoted in 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 8, 14, and 15, that is quoted where where Paul is writing about this church helping out this other Jerusalem church. You guys are rich right now. You have plenty. This one is lack. They're poor and they're suffering. And he, he says this, Your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. So what were they doing with the manna? Some would gather much, some would gather little, and then when they got there, like, oh, you need some more? They were sharing. That's exactly what they were doing, because when Paul talks about it, he says, you're rich right now, guess what? Here's why. Because they, they need it. So you need to give to them because guess what? The time is coming where they're going to be rich and you're going to need it and then they'll give to you. So why does God allow some to have more and others to have less? So those who have more can share with those who have less. Is this socialism? No, <laughs> it's, it's not. Uh, that is never laid out in Scripture. Uh, God in the Old Testament and in the New, it talks about the rich sharing with the poor, but it also talks about those who don't, Work, don't eat. Because in the early church, they were doing this. You read Acts. The church was doing this. They were selling their extra and sharing with those who had need. They thought Jesus was coming back right away. They were doing this. And some took advantage of it. 
Some were like, great, I don't have to work because they're going to give me their stuff. And so in the early church, they said, um, okay, by the way, if you're not going to work, you don't get eaten. This isn't a free ride. This isn't socialism. Go work hard. If God chooses to bless you, be ready to share with those who have need. So that's in your notes. Why does God in his sovereignty give more to some and less to others? So the rich will share with the poor. In these last days, as we live looking toward money, Jesus talks about it in Matthew 6. By the way, throughout James, you see a lot of references back to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, and this is one of them. Jesus agrees. I'm going to read this just to show you that Jesus and James are on the same page. Matthew 6, 19 through 21. If you're a note taker, you can just write that scripture down in there. But it says this, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus says there's a reward coming, and it's eternal. Your life here is 70 to 90 years-ish. So don't lay up your treasures here. Lay up your treasures there by living for His kingdom. James and Jesus are on the same page. So what is the second sin that non-believers make commit when it comes to money that can lead to judgment? Look at verse 4. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. Here's the situation, and it's all over in the Old Testament. In this agrarian culture, a laborer would work for the day. They didn't really have the savings in the banks that we had, but a laborer would work for the day. At the end of the day, they would be paid their wages. On their way home, they would buy their food for that night. So if a employer didn't pay them, they went hungry. And so what he's saying here is you're holding back wages. You're not giving what you're supposed to get. And they're crying out to me and I hear them. Again, we see this is referring to God in judgment, the Lord of hosts. That's the Lord of Sabaoth, the Lord of, of God's armies. That is God in judgment. That is Jesus in judgment. Again, not for the believer, but for the non-believer who is obtaining money by fraud. You see that? This is getting money illegally and hurting others in the process. So, I'm not going to get a show of hands. Any of us done this? Any of us obtained money by fraud? Cheated on your taxes? Not paid a bill that you were supposed to pay? Unfortunately, I have seen this more in the church than I have outside the church. I've seen this more with people who claim to be believers than people who do not claim to be believers. People that don't pay their bills. I mean, as a business, the people I had to chase most to get them to pay, unfortunately, were Christians or those who claim to be. That's not the way we're supposed to be. We pay our bills. So there's the second sin, coming by wealth through illegal and immoral means. Are we spending money on ourselves, our toys, not paying our bills? That's not the heart of a Jesus follower. So again, maybe you've struggled with this in your past. Well, guess what? Jesus covers your sin. Forget about it. Let's move forward. But the life of a Jesus follower, somebody sold out to Jesus where Jesus is Lord. That's what James is all about. Let Jesus be Lord. 
your heart will be different in this area. Matthew 6, 25 through 33. Jesus again refers to what the heart should be like. This is a lengthy passage, but listen to Jesus' words. This is the heart of a faithful Jesus follower when it comes to money and wealth. Jesus says, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious about anything, saying, What will we eat? Or what will we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles, that is non-believers, seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. We don't have to live our lives stressing over our needs. Instead, we pursue Jesus and his kingdom, and he'll provide what we need. Again, you don't work, you don't eat. Do your, do your job, work hard, but we don't pursue wealth because we have a father who loves us, and we can trust him. That's the sign of a, of a heart belonging to Jesus, somebody following Jesus. Last one, the last sin here that we can maybe fall into that leads to judgment, verse 5. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. Here it is, the desire for and pursuit of luxury. The desire for and and pursuit of luxury. Let's go back to that, that Timothy passage where he says, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And by desire for it, many have pierced themselves with many griefs. God doesn't want us to be pierced with griefs. The pursuit of luxury has pulled many people away from God and condemned them to eternity apart from God. This desire for luxury. We in the United States, we are consumed with luxury. Just go to Walmart and just look at all the kitchen gadgets. How many different things can we put in our kitchen to make our life easier? The dicer, the slicer, all these. You could use a knife to do it all. But, but we just want it to be easier, this luxury. The new spa, the brand new car. As I was thinking through this and what, I, what I've seen in my life, we're, we have this unique thing in, in the States but also in other Western worlds. So... When I was 16, my great-grandma died. She was born in 1900. We cleaned out her house. You know what we found? Everything. Baby shoes, shoelaces. She saved everything because she was 30 years old when the Depression started, 29, 30. She went through the Depression. They learned the value of work. They learned the value, the need. Go to the next generation. They also had to work hard, move on, you know, 
different families are different, but they had to work hard for their money. They saved, they gave. Then you move to maybe my generation where we grew up comfortable. We didn't grow up hungry. We didn't grow up cold. We grew up comfortable. And so then this, this college student, this, this teenager, they become 18, 19, they, they move out of their house. Maybe they go to college, maybe they start life, and they think they deserve the same luxury that mom and dad had that they worked decades for. But they can't afford it because at 12 bucks an hour, you can't live like mom and dad lived. So guess what? There's a shortcut. You know the shortcut? Credit. <laughs> and they, if you go to a college campus, they are so smart about this. They put their booths out. You can get a credit card on your first day of college. And you can use that to buy all the things that you want. I have a, a good friend my age who got married at 19. They went out. They, yeah, I was young, huh? <laughs> they furnished their house on credit because they wanted good furniture. They furnished their house on credit. That debt enslaved them for years. Years later, he talked about it. He's like, that's the worst decision we made. You know how much we actually paid in the end for all of those couches and things we didn't really need. We could have gone and got them for free. But we have this desire for luxury. Now keep that going, that this desire, this pursuit of luxury. So you get this debt. Now you get married. Maybe you got it when, when you're married. All right, we've got all this debt, but we also want to maintain this level of living. How are we going to do it? Well, we both need to work. And we both need to work really hard. Now, I'm not against both parents working. It can be done well. But often it's not done well. And the kids suffer for it. Why? Because we want a standard of living we can't afford. We want the new car. How many times have I seen high school kids graduate, go out, and buy a brand new car? I'm like, what job do you have? Oh, I don't have a job yet. And you just bought a brand new car. You spent $13,000 for a new little car, all on debt. Yep, that's stupid. <laughs> I mean, we're in James. James is blunt, so I can be blunt. That's, that's stupid. That's telling God... You haven't given me enough. I don't trust you, so I'm going to... As I've been studying James, oh, good job. Yep. Thank you. Um, this is one of those areas that, that Callie and I were convicted. So if, if you're not aware, we are currently living in a trailer while we build our house. So we're living in a 32-foot trailer. We have three daughters, three dogs, two cats, a couple sugar gliders, and two horses. So we're living out there, Johnson Lane, out in the desert. It's all, we call it shantytown. So if you want to see it, you can drive by. But, but we're living there. We don't have water yet. So we've been there since May 1st-ish. Uh, and we have a bladder under the RV that a truck comes and fills with water. So the kids, they take Navy showers. You get in, you turn on the cold water a lot of times. You get wet, you soap off, you turn it back on because we're saving water. Uh, the AC works okay, so that's nice. But July was the hottest July in 125 years. 
and we're out there. We killed two rattlesnakes in the past couple weeks, one of them in Shantytown. It made its way inside and saved the cat, saved the dog, now chop its head off. So, but I just say this, power, we don't have power yet. We were supposed to have it months ago. So it's on generators, running out of gas. Lydia's gotten really good at putting gas in the generator without getting it all over herself. But, but I just say this to go, here, this is what has confronted Callie and I. At times, we've gotten down a little bit depressed, like, this kind of stinks. <laughs> you know, we, we want more space. We, we've got one little couch, and it's this big, and it's really uncomfortable. So we all, you know, sit on the bed. Yesterday, four of us were crowded on the bed watching something on the little phone. <laughs> but what God has shown us is there's times you're not content. I have not been content, and I live better in this situation than 95% of the people in the history of the world. So why am I not content? Because I want luxury. Because I need space. Because I need a bigger bed than, than this. But we don't. We think we want so much more than we do. Just ask somebody who's done the tiny house thing, Hogan's, or, or, or others. You realize we have so much more than we need. And here we are, you know, I counsel many people going through hard times, let God do his thing through you. James began with that, James 1.1. Consider it joy when you encounter various trials. So people go through trials and I very wisely open up my Bible and I go, you know, you need to go through this trusting God and let him do what he wants to do through your life. And, and then, you know, don't just try and get out of it. And then I go through and I'm like, I just want out. Until finally we go, okay, what does God want to do with us? God wants to make us content full of joy in the dirt, <laughs> in the heat, in the smoke. I just share that to say, I'm here too. So if you're convicted by this, so am I. But what do we need to do to get on the same page as Jesus? He says here that you have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. Uh, again, this is words of judgment. I can't th help but think of Kobe beef. Th think of these cows that uh, they get to drink beer and they get massaged. Those cows have the life. But why? So that when they die, they taste really good. It's the same kind of picture when we're pursuing luxury and saving all this stuff. It's like, my life is good. Well, guess what? You're going to die soon. Slaughter is coming or Jesus is coming back and judgment is coming. So, Get over the, the beer and the massage, and let's follow Jesus. First of all, let Jesus be Lord, and we can avoid the judgment. Again, Tom Nelson, Tommy Nelson had another quote. He says this, I have never seen a Christian man or woman that is significant for God's kingdom that was not faithful with their money. Again, I heard that and went, oh, man, that is, that is blunt. I have never seen a Christian man or woman that is significant for God's kingdom and was not faithful with their money. Maybe you've hit a plateau in your spiritual life, and maybe this is why. Because maybe you've let God have other things, but this is the one thing you're like, God, you can't have access to my money, not that. As we close, I just want to emphasize, this is not a sermon about giving. <laughs> this is not us doing this to increase giving. We believe that God's work done God's way never lacks God's provision. But here at Common Ground, we are all about life change. We are not content with doing church or doing religion. We are about life change. So my heartbeat for you is that you would experience Jesus and experience all he has. One of the greatest ways to do that is to be faithful with your money. 
when you start putting your money in God's hands saying, okay, you are Lord, what does this look like? It will cost. You may have less toys. It may cost. You may give up some things. NFL Sunday ticket. There's a luxury I wish I had. Uh, who, who does have it? Raise your hand. I'm coming to your house every Sunday. <laughs> um, but, but what is it that we might need to give up? As, as we go through our, to our application here, we want to be genuinely changed by Jesus. We want to glorify him. Does he have our money? Does he have our wallets? How, how much money is enough? How much giving? That's between you and God. It is. That, all that is between you and God. And if you honestly go to him, you, you'll figure it out. But give him access. Let him lead you and guide you there. Pursue Jesus wholeheartedly, and you'll have a better life than any amount of money could buy. Peace, joy, purpose, the things that really matter in life. We're going we're gonna to move to more worship now, but I would encourage you. Again, the Holy Spirit is here. The Holy Spirit uses his word to work on us. Respond how you need to respond. Maybe you are faithful with your money. God has blessed you. The way you respond is saying thank you. That could be. And maybe it's even coming up and, and, and writing a prayer request, uh, putting a thank you. It's just saying thank you for taking care of us. Maybe you were convicted by one of these and you need to repent. You can do that. Now, we're going to have people in the back that will pray with you. They're not going to judge you. By the way, we've all been there. But, but maybe we need to repent and move forward. Or maybe we just get to glorify God by, by singing out nice and loud. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, I know that you want what's best for us. And I thank you that you do want what's best for us, that we can trust you. God, I pray that we would trust you. Holy Spirit, I ask that, uh, that we would not feel condemned, but we would feel convicted. I pray that if there's anybody in here that does not know you as Lord, but that they would be drawn to you, they, that they would realize that they're saved by grace, by your work, that it's not any work of ourselves. We're not talking about salvation here when we're talking about money. We don't have to give to be saved. But that if anybody here doesn't know you, that they would surrender to you today. They would go pray with somebody in the back. They would give their lives to you. I pray for those of us that maybe need to become more faithful with our money. God, that we would seek counsel that we would repent if we need to repent, meaning confess our sins to someone else and pray for help to get better. God, we love you. We want to be faithful. We want to see you move in a unique way. And God, we look at the history of the church, the history of the world. Whenever you move in a mighty way, it always starts in your church, always. It always starts in the church walls. It always starts with repentance of sin and prayer. And so God, I ask that you would move and that you would start here among us and that it would spill out to our communities, that many would come to know you and find life in you. Let our songs now be a fragrant aroma to you. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.